This is Christopher Benincasa for the Jersey Arts Podcast. This year, we commemorated the 100th anniversary of the United States' entry into World War I. It's often referred to as the Forgotten War, and to date, there is no memorial in the nation's capital, despite the fact that the U.S. suffered more casualties in World War I than in World War II. Of course, the Great War in Europe began before the U.S. got involved. The conflict began in July 1914. Most of us know that it was one of the largest and most brutal wars in history. But there is one short chapter that is still unknown to many. During the Christmas of 1914, peace broke out. Allied and German soldiers on the front lines reached out to each other from their trenches, initially through Christmas caroling, and met in the no-man's land between them to exchange holiday greetings, trade food, tobacco and alcohol, swap prisoners, play soccer, and hold burial ceremonies for their dead. Then, the truce ended, and the war, as we all know, continued for years. It has to be one of the most unlikely moments in modern history. But the Christmas truce of 1914 really did happen, it's just left out of most textbooks. This Sunday at Kane University, the story will come to life on stage in All Is Calm, the Christmas truce of 1914. I recently spoke with writer and director Peter Rothstein and Kane stage manager Steve Cochran, who we'll hear from first. I had an audience member come up to me and introduce me to her mother, who was in her 90s. And her mother explained to me how she wanted to come see this piece, All Is Calm, The Christmas Truce of 1914, because her father was a British soldier who was at this Christmas truce. And she used to hear the stories as she was a little girl, as she explained it to me on Sunday. And she didn't really believe it was a real story. She thought it was a made-up tale almost initially. She came to find out that it was true. But it's just, it's fascinating to me. They sang songs. They exchanged gifts. They buried their dead. They helped each other bury their dead. That, to me, was like mind-blowing, that there was a touch of humanity in this war that cared for the other side. And then the next day, I imagine they go back and fight for their country or for their cause once again. There was a wonderful uh, quote uh, by Winston Churchill, who, um, in November of 1914, now this happened in December of 1914, In November, Winston Churchill pondered, what would happen, I wonder, if the armies suddenly and simultaneously went on strike? And in essence, they did in December. Uh, I think it's a powerful moment. I think it kind of also can, if you kind of look at where the world is today, there's lessons we can take from that. So what can your audience expect to experience this Sunday at Kane Stage? I think it's going to be sort of very emotional for the audience to watch. You know, we're not going to change the world in this, but maybe maybe someone, in just one person in that audience, it'll just create a calmness over their lives at this moment for this, maybe even just for this hour and a half that they're in the theater. The humanity that we strive for, that brings us together, is this, this undying hope for peace. I really believe in that. Writer and director Peter Rothstein did exhaustive research in developing All Is Calm, traveling throughout Europe to visit war museums, archives, and historic sites. 
the theatrical production that emerged is not your typical war story. So All Is Calm is kind of a docu-musical, I suppose you could call it, about the Christmas truce of World War I. And the first year of the war, 1914, uh, they think there were up to seven different truces along the front lines. They think um, thousands of men, perhaps over 100,000 men, took part in the Christmas truce that first year of the war. And I wanted to create a, a piece of theater about it for a number of years. Uh, the challenge being that the climax of this story is the lack of conflict, which doesn't, doesn't make for great drama. So I had to figure out uh, you know, a, a way into the story that made sense dramatically. Um, I had approached a, a male vocal ensemble uh, named Contus, they're based in the Twin Cities, a really extraordinary group of, of nine male singers and about collaborating on the piece. I'd done enough research on the Christmas truce to know that music was uh, a vital part of trench life uh, in the beginning of the war and thought Contus might be the right collaborator. They do primarily a cappella singing. Most of the music in the trenches would have been a cappella. And so I'd approached them and said, I really don't know what kind of shape this takes. I know music's part of it. And I know I want to tell this story that has been kind of denied a place in our history books and in our um, in, in the stories we tell about World War One, I, I felt like the Christmas truce had been kind of denied its place and um, and Contus said yes we're, we're very interested um, we'd love to collaborate and so I then headed to to Europe and spent a number of weeks along the Western Front as well as um, archive centers in London, Brussels, Paris, Hamburg, Berlin, Dresden, um, trying to uncover as much as I could um, first-hand accounts of, of the Christmas truce. And I understand that the higher-ups in the military did not find this truce as interesting and uplifting as we do over 100 years later. Absolutely, absolutely. By, by November of 1914, they were already editing uh, soldiers' uh, correspondence with home, and so um, they did everything they could. You know, in some ways, um, propaganda as we know it <laughs> was launched in with World War One. Um, the propaganda machine that was put in place uh, at the beginning of New War of, of the First World War was was a remarkable machine, and and the last thing they wanted was to have the home front know that Fritz and Tommy were spending Christmas uh, celebrating together and finding a common humanity when the propaganda machine was to, to negate any, any sense of understanding or certainly any um, finding humanity in your enemy. So it would completely undermine public support for the war. So much was done to, especially on the Allied side, and, and much was put in place at the end of at the end of 1914 to make sure that no fraternization would happen again with, with actual threats of um, you were to execute um, your fellow soldier where he caught fraternizing with the enemy. You did so much hard research for this project. What part of it sticks out in your mind most of all? It's a great question. You know, I think... I think after spending... Gosh, I suppose at the end of the second week, and and I was I was there on my own, and so 
would spend all day in the archive centers and having guides bring me to the various locations along the front where they, they think the various truces happened. And um, But it was it was a bleak, <laughs> it was a bleak vacation, um, and I found myself quite quite depressed at the end of the first ten days, and and began to think about trying not only to, you know, as much as humanly possible, understand the reality of of those men and, and their experience, but also about how we curate war, and you know, my first museum was the. Royal War Museum in Brussels, and when you enter the Royal War Museum, uh, two cannons are flanking the front entryway. And then I went to London, and the Imperial War Museum, you literally walk under a fighter jet to enter into into the museum. And and then I went to uh, Ypres, or Ypres, uh, Belgium, a bilingual city that was destroyed uh, three times during the course of the war. And they have the largest archives. Um, and there's a museum there called the In Flanders Field Museum. And when you enter that museum, there are no, uh, you don't see the machine of war. There, there's a huge mural of these men's faces, and they're looking you right in the eye. And an extraordinary piece of music uh, called Will You Go to Flanders, which is actually a medieval Celtic tune, uh, is playing. And there's a, a reverence, um, and and I had a completely different experience. And after I spent a, a good deal of time in their archive center there, I said to the chief curator, I said, "Okay, are are you an anti-war war museum?" And he said, "No, we wouldn't call it that, but our goal is to put a human face on war." And um, which to many people will translate as an anti-war war museum. Uh, and and that's where I actually found um, that's where I found the soul and the form of the piece I wanted to create. That that most of war we curate around um, our generals, around our strategists, around our scientists, um, uh, looking at maps and who advances on who and how many lives were taken in in the process of gaining this piece of ground, and. And I thought, oh, I want to somehow create a piece of theater that echoes my experience when I entered the In Flanders Field Museum. And and so the goal is um, the piece um, is certainly um, an anti-war um, uh, perspective, but in a different sense of the word, perhaps, in that... Um, these soldiers took peace into their own hands, and it took much more courage to execute peace than execute war uh, in those circumstances. In preparing for this interview, I found myself wondering, how did these soldiers even begin to communicate, uh, let alone arrive at a temporary truce? I didn't know this when I set out to create a piece of music theater about the truce, but, but it's my thesis that the truce never would have happened were it not for music. And that the men, um, as as fall set in, would be, begin to hold these impromptu concerts where they would literally sing to each other across no man's land. You know, many places it was a hundred yards. I mean, uh, you know, on a cold night, um, sound travels, and and you could hear a man coughing in in the trench opposite. 
And so it was, in some ways, very intimate. And, and music became their common language. And trust was established, and a sense of humor was established, as they would literally have round robins of songs uh, back and forth across no man's land. So, so music um, became vital to the event, and so it didn't feel like um, music was just a storytelling device or an artistic choice. It, it actually, in my opinion, was was vital to the truce ever ever happening. All is Calm has been produced in many different ways in many different places. As the creator of the piece, what is it about to you? What does it mean to you? Yeah, you know, I keep um, my the, the note that keeps <laughs> re-entering this space in the rehearsal process with the actors is is just for us to try to comprehend the incredible courage um, that these men exercised that day. And um, it's not just a matter of putting down a rifle and, and taking a chance that that, that one enemy ac- across isn't going to isn't going to fire, but that the thousands and thousands of men across no man's land are going to see the humanity of that moment and and not fire. Um, I can't even imagine that kind of courage. Um, it's one thing to trust another human being. It's another thing to cr- trust an enemy, and it's another 